What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another episode of Live from Nerdville. Today we are broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee, and my guest is CNN host of SC Cups Unfiltered, daily news columnist, SC Cup. Thank you very much for doing this. It's a real honor, and um, I just can't believe that you agreed to, to come on a, a show <laughs> live, live from Nerdville, you know? Sorry I'm on, the honor is mine. The privilege is mine. I'm I'm excited to to be here. <laughs> it's like, you know, I reached out to you because I, I I had this I had this idea like you know um, what I've been doing is I've been interviewing both journalists and 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 musicians and I find a lot of similarities in the passion you know and and in the work you know so you know one of the things that I do notice about music music and journalism is there's a there's a curiosity. That's that's it's a natural curiosity. Like, when did you figure out that you were naturally curious and wanted to kind of pursue being a journalist, a columnist, a television show host? Well, I'd always been very curious as a kid um, and we we moved a lot. So I saw a lot at a very young age, which I think really just opened opened my eyes. And I wanted I was voracious. I just wanted to see and know more. But I didn't really think about journalism as a career until college. I I had always been a good writer. It came very easily to me from childhood on. And so for some reason I thought, well, that can't be my career. It's too easy. And my career has to be something uh, that's that's more challenging or or weighty, I guess. And when I got to college and I, I started working at the high school the, the, the college newspaper, kind of for fun, I just knew instantly, this is for me, this is it in some capacity, whether, you know, print online, magazine, newspaper, book writing, TV, radio, I didn't know, but this was it. I was going to be in this business one way or another. And luckily over 20 years, I found a way to stay in this business. <laughs> so that's a real, that's a real, um, that's a real treat. <laughs> Congratulations. You went to Cornell University, Ithaca, New York. I grew up in the, the sister city called Utica, oftenly confused. Um, and you, you wrote for the Cornell Sun. Now, back in 2000, I recorded a, my first record in Ithaca, New York at Pyramid Studio. No right downtown. Yeah. I used to pick up the Cornell Sun on my way to the studio. It was just, it was something that was in the, the music shop or whatever. It was, it was a, like, do you remember your first story that you published? And like, do you still have yeah. a copy of that? In fact, I do. But this is crazy because in 2000, I, that's the year I graduated. So I was in Ithaca in that year when you were there. The first thing they let me publish in the Cornell Daily Sign, because I was, you're called a compet when you first start. Um, and I was a compet for the arts and entertainment section because that's where I wanted to be. The first thing they let me publish was a music review. And this, the artist was, oh, I'd have to look it up, but it was ridiculous. Um, and not very, not very well known, although I'm sure you'll know who it was. Let me get back to you on, on it. Um, I, I actually have the clip in the room next door if you want. I'll get it. But it was probably 60 words, you know, like a really short piece. But man, did I labor over that right. music review. I mean, I just wanted it to be the best 60 words on page. And as such, it, it's terribly overwrought. 
<laughs> but then I started writing more, um, you know, movie reviews. I, I was an art history major, so they let me do art reviews. And then eventually I became editor of that section. And so uh, I did I did a lot. I did opinion pieces and I interviewed bands. We had we had Dave Matthews come to campus. She loved special sauce, like a bunch of cool uh, acts. And so I got to interview musicians and stuff. It was a really cool formative experience. And to this day, I say it was the best job I ever had working in that newsroom with my peers, right. uh, having no rules. I mean, we were literally running the show. Uh, the, the daily sun's an independent newspaper. So there's no like bosses above us. We were just doing it and staying up late, putting the bed, you know, the paper to bed at 4am with my friends eating bad food. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure musicians can relate to this life that we had, Exactly. But it was a love affair, uh, you know, with this life. I would not have changed a thing. So it was really great. You know, I, I have um, in my place in California, I still have the poster of when I played, um, I played with Buddy Guy at The Haunt in Ithaca yes, when I was 13. Right. It was right on State Street. I believe it was 121 State Street. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. And... Okay. It's funny because when you say that, like, that's your best job you've ever had, I look at it those days when I was 13 years old and playing guitar and there was no rules, there was really no pressure. And, like, you're doing it for the purest form. You love it. Totally. And it's such a pure form of artistic expression. And, again, it's like there's no rules and, and there's, there's you know, you don't have obligations. and, and Yeah. You know, when you got your job with the New York Times, did you realize – that okay now this is now this is big time you know no well yes and no so i had spent a year or two freelancing and kind of struggling because when i came out of college the dot-com bubble burst yes. pretty quickly so the very cool hip online magazine associate editor job i got out of college at a website called drinks.com nice. which was as awesome as it sounded uh, well, that that imploded in four months. Four months after starting, I was out of job. So I'd freelanced. And um, when I got the New York Times job, yes, I mean, I was thrilled. It was the New York Times. Yes. It was a steady salary. It was, you know, a 401k. I had benefits. Mm -hmm. It was very real. But I wasn't being published. Um, I was writing internally for a department called The Index. Right. And what we would do is we would write abstracts of every single story that appeared in the paper. And I was given the sports section right. and I loved sports. So that worked out. So I would come in every day. I would take the sports section from that day and I would rewrite all the stories so that they were like this. You code them, you get, you pull out certain names so you can index them. And so it was awesome to be part of the New York times, but I was, I was not writing in the way that I ultimately wanted to. Right. But I did take advantage of a lot of the opportunities while I was there. The New York Times had this program where they would pay for graduate school. So I got a master's at NYU at night over six years that right. I was at the New York Times, which is like invaluable. And I started writing my first book while I was there um, and really started my political journalism career while I was at the New York Times, though not for the New York Times, you know, right. sort of on the side. So I loved working there, but it, it wasn't the way I got in was not the way I was going to grow. Gotcha. Well, one of the things that I, I always interests me is like 
when in journalism, there's that moment, you know, like where you 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 you're, you found yourself as a you know talented writer. You found yourself, you know, like going. When did you decide, or when did you you know start being interested in television, um, and being on TV, and making that that kind of that that career change? Yeah, I was never interested in television. Uh, I when I wrote the first book with a co-author. And Simon and Schuster picked it up and published it. And they started putting us, you know, booking us on TV to promote the book. And the first hit we did, I did, was on Morning Joe. And we talked about the book. And I just remember being very comfortable. I wasn't nervous. And afterward, they asked if I, I'm open to coming back. And sure, I was, because I wanted to promote the, the, the writing. Yeah. And... I just kept getting called and I wasn't signed at the time. So everyone, you know, Fox would call and CNN would call and I could do anything. I could do go anywhere. Yeah. So I did it all. And meanwhile, I was using that promotional platform, not just to promote the book, but now to promote a kind of brand that I was working on as a writer. Yeah. And I was chasing column space, uh, you know, and, and writing opportunities. And meanwhile, TV kept calling. And after a few years, I got a contract offer and I thought, oh, my gosh, like, is this going to be my full time job now? Yeah. And as long as I could keep the writing gigs I had amassed, I had, I had put together this like suite of writing jobs. I think yeah. I was at town hall and maybe human events doing, doing regular things there and Politico. And so I put together this suite and as long as I could keep all that going, I was open to, to shifting over to TV. Cause like I said, it wasn't hard for me. It, it didn't make me nervous. I didn't stress over it the way some people seemed to. And I didn't like desperately crave it, which, you know, if you do that can kind of get in the way of your of your work there. So I was always just kind of open to it, but didn't really chase it. And then over time, it, it really did become my full, my full time job. I still, I have a nationally syndicated column. I still write. I wrote another book, you know, since, since then. And I'll always be a writer. I write my own show now, you know, I write my scripts writing is in me. I have to do it, but I've been so lucky uh, and, and honored to have been given various platforms throughout my career on, on television and radio that, uh, you know, I can't imagine a better, a better turn of events, you know? I mean, it's really, it's really been great. Tell me about like, um, when you're first getting on television, do the segment producers, producers show people who run the show, do they, do they, are they, ed, you know, egging you on, so to speak, to be controversial, edgy, try to try to try to, you know, bring it right up to the line? You know, I mean, because because again, it is it is entertainment. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's, it's it, you're in the entertainment business, like it or yeah. not. And it's dressed as news, you know, because like, you know, when I was on Letterman or whatever, you know, it, the, the producer would be like, OK, then they always look at the bass player like, OK, you don't talk so much. You know, you know, it'd be one of those it'd be one of those things, you know, we're 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 selling a record. We don't speak, you know, we right. play like, like it's to me because now it seems like it's like people are really encouraged to go right up to the edge of the line, you know, and 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 be controversial yeah. to, to get this 
fuel this entertainment machine? I think it, I mean, it depends on where you are. And I've, I've worked at many networks and I've done lots of different shows from C-SPAN, you know, to The View and Bill Maher and kind of everything in between. It really depends on where you are. Some shows are very produced and you know your role and you know what's going to happen when kind of thing and you fill the space in between but everything around you is kind of produced and other shows are very organic without any direction from anyone just be yourself go and we'll we'll handle it as it comes so it really does depend and i've been lucky i mean look i've been on a lot of those shows where they encourage a food fight, a debate, you know, an, an yeah. argument, the yelling. I've been on a lot of those. I, I, um, I've had those shows, you know, Crossfire sort of invented Crossfire. the medium. I was on Crossfire. Um, but I'm lucky now. I, I, that, that might have suited me as I was younger and coming up. But right now, uh, it really doesn't interest me to do the yelling, antagonistic, sort of gotcha show and I'm lucky the show that they're letting me do now on CNN unfiltered I don't have to do any of that if I don't want to right and I've had guests on where I've had to really push and it's gotten a little tense but it's not my mo uh now and now I like to have people on because I actually want to hear from them and right. we I don't tell them what to say or how this should go just come on I like your opinion even if I don't agree with it I want people to hear from you let's just have a conversation that's not for everyone, right? I don't have Hannity's ratings for for a reason, but it's it's a nice space for me where I can invite people on who may or may not agree. We can find solution points, yeah. places to start and have yeah. an interesting conversation and really hear from someone. That interests me more now than it did probably when I was younger and more energetic and fighting and scrapping and trying to, you know, make my make my mark right. <laughs> as it were. Do you find it, uh, do you feel a responsibility as a host um, if you see someone on your show kind of like veering off in a direction where they're gonna pin themselves into a corner and you're like, and do you ever find yourself thinking, oh my God, that's gonna hurt in the morning? Cause after a broadcast, the social media explodes or they they clickbait or stuff like that. Do you ever do you ever try to sure. steer people away going, okay, let's 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 go to commercial or let's, uh, let's talk about oh, something else. Well, no, I don't. Look, if I think that what the person just said or did was in good faith, but clumsy, right? I will absolutely try to give them another chance. Well, you don't actually mean it that way, right? right. But if I think a person's knowingly saying something um, that's, that's going to be provocative, that's going to be controversial, if it's wrong, I try to correct it. But right. But uh, no, look, you know what you're doing and what your what your your goal is, and we might not have the same goal. But if your goal is to get clicks, hey, I'm not going to stand in your way. You know, that's not it's not my role. I'm not I'm not your producer. Right. I'm the host of the show, and I'm going to steer it in the way I, I want it to go. But I can't control what everyone says. It's a live show, and that's sure. kind of the excitement of of it. You're a conduit. You're a conduit for the other people. That's right. Do you ever, I'm like, I, I follow you on social media and I think, um, I think you're fantastic dealing with the trolls. I, I just, I, 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 and I, I try, I try to stay out of it. I will engage them at, at in certain points where, where the level of just stupidity just, it becomes, it, it, I need to zero it out, you know, at least set the, 
like have you like my hat's off to you because they're you know like if you ask a question on your show and you want to go and it could be as monday like tell me about what you had for dinner and they they pause and they look at you and go yes i had i we did have dinner but let me talk about my new toyota corolla uh-huh. i mean it's a complete dodge you know i mean and you know is there ever moments where you're just sitting there going are you fucking kidding me with this guy you know you know it's like are they just are they basically just tell you something that that it's the sun is shining but you can see the raindrops falling from the window you know what i mean it's like diametrically opposed to common sense and truth how do you how do you just sit there and go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i mean obviously you challenge them but I don't you- yeah i mean it's different you know when i'm live on the air versus what i do on social media is different right so i actually get that a lot on the air from members of Congress who do not want to answer the question I ask. And they're very artful at not answering it. And like, literally your example is not crazy. I mean, they will literally answer a totally different question. So that, you know, you try to pin them down. Uh, Only occasionally have I had people come on my current show and say something blatantly false. Cause I, I tend not to invite people that do that on. Yeah. Yeah. But I have that luxury now. I haven't always when I've, I've been on other shows where people just book guests and you never know what you're going to get. But on social media, I try, I try only to engage if I think it's going to move something forward, shed light on something, expose something that people might not completely know is there. I'm, I'm not really trying to like shame people that I'm not interested <laughs> in that. You know, if that's your goal on, on social media, there are great people at it. I, I'm not that good at that. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I try not to internalize the trolling too much and yeah. I can't be everyone's fact checker. That's not my job either. Right. There are great people on Twitter who will go at the, the, the nonsense with facts and that's so, so important and, and useful. I really just try to engage on the things that I'm, I'm working on and thinking about and producing and um, see who's interested and wants to talk about that. And then I also, I use Twitter to talk about music because I love music, so that's exactly. fun too. So tell me about music, you know, like, you know, what, what, um, what got you into, because I, I, speaking of Twitter, I, I, as in doing research for this, um, you said best decade, the 1970s, the worst decade, 1990s. I know. And that was but, controversial. It is controversial. But but honestly, it's 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 your opinion. And music is subjective. That's the whole of point. Course. Of it. It, yeah, it, I was it, I was a little surprised right at how, how crazy people got like I was definitively wrong. And I, I didn't think art was like that. But um yeah, I, I don't know. I love music. I've always loved music. I've kind of been an old soul. I remember for my 16th birthday, my mom got gave me her Beatles albums right. and a record player. This was, you know, in the 90s. And this is this is what her 16-year-old daughter really wanted. So I've always loved classic rock and, and late 60s, 70s music has really just always appealed to me even as I was living in the nineties and two thousands. And I don't know, I just love, I have loved connecting with people on Twitter about music, you know, whether it's Paul Stanley, I know you've had him on. We, we go, we go down these rabbit holes of like, um, musicals, which is so, so much fun. Um, Richard Marx is a friend. And so we, you know, we've connected on, on music and other musicians that I've met through, social media, it's just been so 
cool to talk about something that's not my job, you know, but that I love so much. And I think everybody has that about them. You know, I mean, like where you, you, you know, I like talking to journalists because that's not what I do for a living. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm going to ask a guitar player about what cables he's using. I, I'm like, okay, it's been done, you know. Um, one of the things that um, I always, um, what, do you, what do you think about concerts going forward? Um, would you, if there was a vaccine, and I'm just asking because, you know, I'm just trying to figure out when I'm going to be employed again. Um, if, if, if there was a vaccine that was agreed upon that this is a, this is a, you know, would you be comfortable going to the Beacon Theater or, you know, going to see a club show or anything like that? Yeah, it's hard because I miss that so much. Right. Um, before all this, I think the last show I went to was Stephen Kellogg's show. He's a friend of mine, so I've seen him a couple times. And then we saw Milk Carton Kids just down the road in Terrytown when they came through right. town in these really lovely, intimate environments, which is my my favorite way to see right. uh, live music. That worries me. That's, you know, you're side by side. It's a very small, small venue. That's the way I like it anyway. I don't know. I'd have to be real convinced that we'd gotten pretty much rid of this thing or, or that there is a vaccine, but outdoor concerts, I might feel uh, more open to as the months go on. My friends now who are touring musicians are doing virtual concerts and that's been very cool too. Yes. To sit in your living room. I know it, it's not as well paying for them as, as touring, but you know, to sit in your living room and watch a, a, a musical act that you like do an intimate concert in your you know, from your couch is very cool too, but no one wants this to be the norm. Everyone wants, you know, some return eventually. I just, it has to be, it has to be safe for all of us. It has to be safe. And you have, you have a responsibility if you're going to invite people out to a show to, yeah. to not put them in a position, you know, you know, cause there's some that take the position. Well, you know, they're there on their own free will. Yeah. But you're kind of like, you, 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 you know, without PT Barnum, there's no, there's no, you know, polar bears on unicycles juggling, you know what yeah. I mean? And, well, and didn't the chain smokers just kind of, aren't they kind of in trouble for a Hamptons? They put on some show in the Hamptons and I think they're looking at citations now and a bunch of people got sick and I'm not saying it's their fault. I'm just saying, yes, you know, artists are challenged by this and, uh, you know, you want everyone to be taking this as seriously as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends that are, you know, in the blues business that are that are struggling financially because of it. Sure. And, and you know, I mean, nobody could have foreseen a complete shutdown of an entire industry. I mean, like, well, some of them, you know, we started talking about this in January, February, that this could be yeah. coming down the pike and yeah. be negative. But they're like, you know, they're still optimistic. We're going, yeah, maybe we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to go out in the fall. And I go, I, I always, not to sound flippant or like an idiot, I go, I go, of what year? Yeah, it's, right. No, it's not. It's not this fall. It no. could be not even next fall. It may be in 2022. You know. I think that's the reality. And I wish what I wish from our political class on both sides that there had been more of a because as humans we react differently to the same thing based on how we're told it. Right. And if they had told us as it became clearer months ago. You guys are looking at a year potentially yeah. or six months potentially of lockdown and mask wearing. Well, then it might take a couple of weeks to adjust to that mentally, but 
I think it's far worse that we've basically been taking this like hour by hour over months right? without anyone really saying, this is the reality. And so we've gone back and forth. We've contracted, we've, we've, um, you know, we've deflated, we've, we've spiked, we've, we've plateaued. And that is unsustainable for like the human emotional system. So I, I, I just wish that going forward, I'm ready to start over. Um, we can have a more definitive, realistic, serious timeline from someone uh, of how this is going to go instead of day-to-day wishful thinking right. that it's going to some kind of deus ex machina event is going to happen that that is going to save us all from from the realities of what we're going through. It's not. You know, I, I, I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee, and I live downtown, and there's a there's a street here called Broadway, and it's all the honky-tonks. Yeah. It's the reason why they call it Nash Vegas in the first place. Yeah. And Tooties, I'm a, right? Toots? It, it, you know, Tootsies and then Legends, and there's right. – it's, it's if, yeah. if you want to binge drink grain alcohol and Kool-Aid, you've come to the right spot. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. It's a fun town, yeah. Out of plastic cups, and yes, it's a fun town. <laughs> I've just been walking around and and just noticing, and I'm not sure if this is the right way to put it, but what they're trying to do is is they're trying to do it in a brackish way, meaning there are some places that are open, but there's still live bands, there's still people congregating, pretending like there's nothing going on, but just not as many, and then they now they're shutting it down at 10 o'clock. I'm like, what's the difference between 10 o'clock and 10.01? Nothing. Nothing. And, and it's like... Nothing. And and I understand the musicians here have to make a living, and I understand everybody's freaking out. But the but the the more they do that, it prolongs exactly the, right the, the, the totality of the comeback. You know, like of, of, of the comeback and exactly right pushing us down months and setting it back months. You know, so it's either to me, it's either all or nothing. You know, I wish. I mean, I completely agree. I wish. I wish that's the way everyone in charge. You know, everyone with some level of control saw it because I think that's the only way we're going to really get this down for the long run Yes. instead of just continually like playing whack-a-mole with it. Okay. I want to, I, I have a couple of things I need to ask you. Go for it. Very rarely do I get to talk to a person that has won on Jeopardy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, you know, I, I always tell people it's like, you know, because there's there's the, the the you know, the keyboard warriors that, you know, you post an Instagram photo of of you playing guitar and they're like, oh, that ain't so good. I can do that better. I'm like, oh, yeah, get on stage with me and I'll show you how it's done. You yeah. get, on with a, get on stage with a pro. You, you're, you forget about it. Yes. Right. Not to sound egotistical. Like I have two chips on my shoulders, which I do. I hear you. No, I hear you. Yeah. So. You know, there's a lot of times where you're sitting there watching Jeopardy on TV and you're answering the questions as they come along. You're, uh-huh. in, you're beating the buzzer, but you're on your couch. Uh-huh. And, and, and inevitably, you know, like, you know, my girlfriend, she says, you, you should try out for that. You know, like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, let me tell you something. The minute you get on the set, all bets are off. These are pros. Uh-huh. So was it how much different was it being on the set of Jeopardy? Whew. There's Alex. There's the questions they are coming fast and furious. you got the buzzer. Right. From just being a, 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 you know, obviously, if, if you're watching it at home. It's night and day. It's the difference yeah. between singing in your shower where everyone sounds good and getting on stage and singing in front of a million people. Um, it's, I was nervous. I, I don't get nervous. 
And I was out of my mind nervous because not only is it Jeopardy, yeah. but it's the it's the newsmakers edition. So I'm on with two very smart people, Chuck Todd from MSNBC and um Is it Jonathan, Jonathan Franzen? Yeah, and Jonathan Franzen, um a, a book author, very, very smart book author. And I didn't want to be embarrassed because, you know. <laughs> People know who I am, and God, uh, so many are just looking for me to embarrass myself and wipe out. So I didn't go in with a goal to win, even though I wanted to for my charity. I just wanted to not be embarrassed. And then there's a live audience that's added pressure. Yes. And the buzzer is tough. People don't realize it's not a matter of buzzing in first. It's a matter of buzzing in. There are lights on stage that nobody can see except the contestants. Yeah. And they go... They blink down. And when it hits the last light, that's when you can buzz in and not before. So it's this trick that you have to figure out when you walk in. You know, you don't have days to rehearse. Right. To buzz in right when that last light goes off and before someone else does, but not a second earlier. I mean, that's the hardest part. Right. So there's lots of tricks to it. And then, you know, you got to know some stuff. Yeah. So it was it was really intense. As much as I enjoyed it, I told Alex I was like I don't and I won, which was you know just a cherry on top. Um, I told him I was like I don't think I could do this again. Like this was more <laughs> pressure than right. I've ever faced in my life. It's really hard. It's really hard. You know, and you know I hear like you know because I have a friend who's in that world, and she was actually um, she was actually uh, 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 she won Wheel of Fortune, but she knows she knows she's in television, and like if you if you like that guy, uh, I forget his name, Ken, uh, yeah, Jennings, he won like seventy five in a row. They're not doing it seventy five consecutive days. They're doing five episodes a day. A day, yeah, right. So you're 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 exhausted. I mean, I, it could be, yes. I couldn't imagine that, you know? Well, and it's weird because they always say, you know, when people first start doing shows like mine, they'll say, oh, you know, it'll be done. It'll be, it'll go by super quickly. I was doing a, hosting a three hour radio show. They said, oh, it'll go by so, so quickly. Right. And that's usually true. This was the longest hour of my life doing Jeopardy. Nothing was quick. It happened in slow motion, even though you're trying to beat the clock. I can't even describe it, but I was like, when will this be over? Right. Because it was just so much, every second is an opportunity for embarrassment. Right. To to humiliate yourself every second. And so it was just, um, it was a lot. It was a lot. I'm, I'm grateful I got through unscathed. And you won. And I won, yeah. But my, my, the best part was like, I, I think I almost cleaned a category baseball um, against Chuck, Chuck Todd, who's a big baseball fan, but so am I. And I, um, I beat him out on a bunch of those. So that was great for, uh, for the old ego. <laughs> so speaking about baseball, why the Mets? I know. Why? I know. I mean, um, I'm from New York and I, and I <laughs> opening day, I had my Yankee hat on. Why the Mets? Really? I'm not mad at this question. I understand it. There's a real simple answer. The short answer is I'm 19 at Cornell University and my boyfriend is from Queens. Okay. And a big Met fan. And so I get into it. It's something we do together. We watch the Met game at night and eventually we go to Met games. And, 
you have to remember that in like 1999, the Mets were great. I mean, this was the Sports Illustrated cover, best infield ever with Gardo Alfonso, Mike Piazza, Robin Ventura, John Olerud. Like, they were good. Yeah. And 2000, they go to the Subway Series. Like, it wasn't, they weren't a bad team at the time that I really fell in love with them. Right. Um, you know, they've obviously not been great every year since. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just fell in love. I can't explain it. That's what sports is. It's not rational. And uh, that's the team I fell in love with. And I am loyal. I stick. Yeah, I mean, we. It, it, I always think. I, I always think sports loyalty start. I always say they're grandfathered in by your grandfather. You know, totally. it, it, it was like we were. You don't Yan- choose it. Yeah, right. <laughs> we were Yankees Giants fans by, and we were forced to be yeah. Yankees. Of there course. Was, it wasn't the Buffalo Bills. It wasn't the Mets Jets. It was Yankees Giants. Yeah. You know. Well, it's so, a lot of like religion, and I actually this was my master's dissertation um, dissertation for NYU, comparing sports fandom to religious devotion, because. You don't usually choose your religion. Some people do, but the vast majority are born into it or it's based on where you live or your ethnicity or how you grow up. It's chosen for you. And then it's kind of pounded in over time through rituals and sacred space and all the things that go into being a religious devotee. And it's not rational. You don't say, well, my religion's not doing so well, so I'm going to start looking (laughs) at a different religion. It's just like, well, the Mets aren't great. I might go team shopping right it's a very similar experience it's very arbitrary and yet as passionate you know as it comes i'm just kind of fascinated by how devoted we can become do you think baseball gets through the whole season no are you kidding these guys are going to strip clubs after games and getting each other covid sick they're covidiots is what i'm saying covidiots and why are you making this worse for all of us? No, I mean, if you can't do this right with the limited chance we're giving you, you don't deserve to do it at all. A friend of mine, um, he works for the uh, Milwaukee Bucks, guitar collector buddy. And um, he's he's in Orlando right now in a, in a, in a basically a gigantic NBA bubble. And nobody's getting in and nobody's getting out. If you have yeah. to- you need you need a special dispensation like like somebody has to go to a funeral whatever something happens personal life they they are allowed out but then they have to quarantine on the way back in and it, well, that's it be, a way to do it because they're going to try but baseball just seems like i think um washington nationals five players i mean it's we're, we're 10 games in yeah uh, how is this thing going to last 60 games i don't i don't personally see it happening and, no. and it, you know I don't either. If, if they're not going to be responsible as a as a league and then as teams and as players, um, you know, they're going to shoot themselves in the foot here. Yeah. And it's the worst. I think it's worse if you shut it down twice. You know, it's, I agree. It's, I completely agree. Yep. That's why I'm not touring until next year. I don't want to get out there and figure out the hard way do that right. do it yeah. right. Do it right. Yeah. Two, two things I got to ask you about before we wrap up. Seinfeld. Why is Seinfeld? Still funny today as it was when I watched it as a teenager, I watched it as a 20-something, a 30-something, a 40-something, and I still laugh out loud, funny sitcom. What was about that show that was so special? Shame on you 
for asking me this with like two minutes to go because there's no there's no time limit. Oh my god, where do I start? So uh, yeah, as I, I I guess you're asking me this because you know I'm obsessed and I have long been obsessed with Seinfeld and um, consider myself an expert. Like right. I could do a whole Jeopardy, um, single Jeopardy, double Jeopardy, final Jeopardy on Seinfeld. I'd know every answer. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to worry about the lights. You just keep your foot, you know, keep just, your just finger. Whatever on the, it is, I, I know it. Whatever the question is, I know it. Yes. Um, a couple things. What I found so refreshing when I was watching it younger in real time, mm -hmm. it was one of the first shows where there were no heroes, right? These were four very unlikable people. Right. And although they may have endearing moments, they were not people you aspired to be. <laughs> yeah, right. And there were no morality lessons at the end. This didn't wrap up. There wasn't a, you know, a, um, a lesson at the end. Things didn't, didn't solve themselves. Yeah. I found that so refreshing. And that style of storytelling was just, um, it really appealed to me because it was realistic and there was no veneer. And then obviously these are four brilliant actors and terrific characters. Yeah. The writing was incredible, unmatched. And I think it's a unique trick to be able to tell these kind of absurdist stories, you know, and you can name whether it's the Chinese restaurant or, um, you know, master of your domain, whatever the scenario is, they are absurd. Right. To be able to do it in a way that is entertaining and funny and you do, it doesn't break away and feel, well, this is just dumb. Yeah. It never felt dumb. And then the last thing is the lack of consideration for political correctness. Yeah. Which you can't really even do anymore. And I remember Jerry saying, like, there's a reason he stopped performing at college campuses. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. And I think maybe Chris Rock said that, too, that you just you couldn't be funny if you were constantly concerned about outrage and what we now call cancel culture, that sort of thing. There's a difference between being sensitive and, and being, you know, paralyzed by by political correctness. And this show did not worry about that. Right. And it was so great in the way it used comedy to make fun of racism and racists. Right. It didn't glorify them. It didn't play into it. It made them look ridiculous, you know. Right. Um, and I just thought, I don't think we've seen that again yeah. since then. I mean, maybe in Curb, you know, Curb, Curb did that in a different way. But Seinfeld was a moment in time. It was magic in a bottle. And... There's never been anything better or funnier as far as I'm concerned when it comes to comedy on TV. You know, I have a, I have a, a friend who's a comedy agent and we'll, we'll hang out and we go, go to dinner. And I asked him this question. I said, I said, is it true or false? You're because he represents some big top line comedy, you know, comics and, and comedians. And I said, true or false? Your, your, your clients are one joke away from a Netflix special and one joke away from being canceled uh -huh. all the same night. And he yeah. goes, totally true. Like, oh. 
Like, what do you what do you think? Of, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. You it's know, a great question. But what a I mean, what a stressful. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you know, and there's and there's no lonelier place on stage when you're bombing. You know, like I, I'll do five minutes of material like in the show, but if it's bombing, I'm I got a song. I got another half of the set. Right, go. right. You know, I got a bailout place. I mean, what do you think about cancel culture? And and the the there's just I mean, at this point what next you know i mean it's yeah, whether yeah. you agree or disagree on either side of the of the political spectrum i mean it's there's people who have had real careers have had them completely wiped out negated in a matter of a single news cycle yeah i'm concerned a couple things i'm concerned that look if you're in the public eye you're you know you have to be held accountable you know that people are looking at what you say and do with you know more scrutiny and higher standards. I think the way we're canceling non-famous people, ordinary people, right? like their lives are over, their jobs are taken away. Um, I, I worry about that sort of mob mentality, that sort of right. vigilante justice. I don't know that that does a service. Right. To any of the very important conversations we should be having about all of these issues, from race to sexism and sexual harassment, all the things. Second, I'm not sure canceling someone is an effective way to get to the bottom of these issues. Right. You know, pretending someone doesn't exist anymore or pretending they never said what they said because we scrub it from social media or we take the episode out or we don't air it, does not mean people don't think that way or say those things. And I'd rather either, you know, see that dealt with on a show if, if people on a show said it so that we could see what they go through and what they learn and how they have to figure out how to, how to grow from this experience. Or I'd rather... I'd rather have some kind of public forum to solve some of these problems that actually address them, that tackle them head on. When we just cancel people and write them out of history and say, go away and never come back, that changes nothing. I mean, it has a chilling effect and it makes you very scared uh, uh, about what to say, certainly. And in my business, that is very deleterious. My job is to put my hand on the hot stove. And if you feel like you're going to get canceled every five seconds, well then we, we don't, we can't do our jobs. Yes. But you know, is it, is it good that we ha- you know, take a step back and think about the things we're saying before we say them? Absolutely. But I, I don't think, um, you know, can't canceling people is really solving the really important serious issues we, we should be talking about. And what do you think? I mean, like, you know, there's, this, there's there's some people that go, you know, like if I'll say something on Twitter and I and I've said stupid shit on Twitter, that's OK. I'm a musician. It is what it is. I'm also an independent musician. And and there's some people that literally I don't know how they how they have access to this thing. Well, in 2007, you said something yeah. about a guitar pedal and blah, blah, blah. Like, are there like are there like like floors of people with computers? <laughs> And, and, and high-end, like, like, like satellite coverage of, like, going back retroactively and looking up everything you've ever said yes. out loud, ever. Yes, the, the like, answer is yes. It's amazing. 
It's amazing. It's terrifying. I mean, at some point, yeah, we need to be, you know, accountable for the things we've said and done. Twitter is not, you know, Twitter's not uh, private. It's it's in public. Right. But at the same time, if no one's allowed to grow, change their mind, make a mistake, have a bad day, I mean, these are ridiculous standards that we're trying to hold people to. And I don't see it benefiting in the way, you know, cancel culture enthusiasts might want it to. I don't see it having the intended effect. It seems like it's skim. It's like skim, uh, skipping a rock over the top of a pond. Mm -hmm. It's like it's that kind of. That, that's what it's fixing. It's not getting to the. It's you're not going to the to the bottom. You know, a bottom up approach. Going let, let's let's fix the problems you're that's talking, right. about, which are legitimate. But if we're just going to cancel somebody and, and then move on to another thing and then cancel that too, you're not really. You're kind of dealing with it. Not yeah. dealing. With it. You're you're almost ignoring it. And yeah. it, in a in a weird way last question and it's our it's our series I, every once in a while um i do a celebrity question now now some say i'm i'm a d e or f list celebrity myself which <laughs> puts me right up there with macgyver stunt double or the great grand dog of lassie anyway this is an a-lister his name is paul stanley and he and he plays in a band called kiss okay I asked him, I said, would you be interested in asking Essie a couple questions? First of all, he says, in caps, big fan, double exclamation point. <laughs> Being immersed in the world of politics and current events, can you disconnect and disassociate, question mark? Can you maintain an overall view of the world as good and not become cynical? Yeah, I can disconnect. Um... I can disassociate, I, I've had to over so many years of doing this and covering great stories, but also really heartbreaking, awful, tragic stories like school shootings, the Syrian genocide. I mean, stuff that, stuff I've seen that never makes it to air, thank God, because it's too awful. Um, stories that really hit you hard. You have to, at some point, not take all that home with you every single night. And so I'm, I, I work at it. It's, I can't always do it. Sometimes I'm a puddle. Sometimes I, you know, I've cried on air because I get so consumed by a story that I'm covering. Um, but I can disassociate usually, and it's necessary in, in what we do. It's hard sometimes to see the world overall as good when you're in the business of pointing out what is so wrong. Right. You know, uh, I, we're not we're not PSA. We're not public service announcements. We're not we're not Sesame Street. We're right. there to we're there to hold people accountable. That's the number one job of a journalist. And even when we do it in an entertaining way or an infotainment way, it is our job. Right. And holding people accountable means identifying problems and finding out who's responsible. Yeah. On a macro level, that's the president of a country or a dictator or, you know, your local city councilman. And on a micro level, it's all of us. We're all responsible for some systemic social problem. That's very hard to internalize constantly and ingest and say, well, but the world's really good. Now, I know in my mind it is because I know good people and I know good things happen. But we really, in our business, have to force ourselves to tell those stories more than we do. Um, and that's on us. Because we, 
we don't always make time for the great stories and the uplifting stories. And here's what they got right stories. Yeah. I think those are just as important. And when I force myself to go find those, uh, usually I get uh, a, just a little less cynical, maybe for five minutes and then it all comes back. <laughs> I mean, I mean, journalism is a contact sport, you know? Yeah. And just like music, if you do it professionally, you take it seriously, it's a contact sport. Right. And, and you know, it, to me, it just seems like, you know, it would be very difficult to not be able to just at some point just turn it off you just go I just there's 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 days like i'm around here i've been a lot of time to myself i, I gotta turn i just gotta turn the news off i just can't totally. i can't ingest any more the it, it was the the murder hornets were the straw that <laughs> the broken back for me okay i was like that's it you can put them in any order you want i was done with 2020 <laughs> murder and hornet were then grouped together right. and, and i'm like are you effing kidding me with this now a B, you know? Right, and, right. and so I, I understand, but like you're, I mean, you, you, you're so at your access to all of it. You have a staff, you have, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like just me on my computer going down a rabbit hole. I mean, you, you, you see stuff that, like you said, doesn't even make it to air. And it's, it, a, lot, it's, yeah. it's a lot, to, it's a lot to take. Essie Cups, thank you so much. For being this on. was so fun, Joe. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, and it was a blast. You know, I, I, I've done about 20 of these, maybe yeah. more. And everyone from Paul Stanley, we had Miles Kennedy on yesterday. Tomorrow is Brad Paisley, and and cool. I, I don't get nervous. I got nervous today because I just I'm it, I'm just I'm out of my wheelhouse. We we didn't talk about a guitar at all. We talked well, about I, that's, I, I I don't have much to say about a guitar, so that's lucky for me. But it was. No, this was a great great conversation. Super, super fun. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for being on here. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Essie Cup. Until next time, this has been live at Nerdville. I'm sure, I'm sure she's gonna be super proud. This will be like right at the top of her 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 reel. Live from Nerdville. Totally, yeah. <laughs> Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you there. <laughs>